Hi, this is Paul. I probably surprised a bunch of you on Monday when I not only put out the little uh, Alex O'Connor video on wildness at the usual homeroom time at 6 a.m. Pacific, but at 10 a.m. I released a much larger video on following Tom Holland's breadcrumbs into the conversation surrounding Islam. Now, on that video, I walked through, this is the thumbnail for it, I walked through why I've taken a while to get to this question of Islam, and I also walked through my interest in Islam. Uh, if you watch the, well, actually, at our Sunday morning estuary, Dave, who was on the Freddie and Paul show, he mentioned it just briefly on the Freddie and Paul show. He he commented, Dave, Dave takes a lot of Uber around Sacramento, and so many of his drivers that he takes in Sacramento are Muslim. And I've noticed this, I haven't taken Uber that much in Sacramento, usually to and from the airport, let's say, if I don't have a, a kid ready at hand to drive me. But the, many of them are, are Muslim. And so there is, there, is a, there is an Islamic community here in Sacramento. It's not a large one. An imam, after David had a conversation with uh, an Uber driver, then got to uh, Dave, and Dave was talking to him. And for a while, the imam was quite interested in talking to Dave, probably thinking that he might be able to make a convert. And then he discovered just how deep Dave's Christian roots are, and then he kind of gave up and lost interest in him, and for whatever reason. And that's totally okay. The, sort of the tribal, evangelistic proselytizing, sparring between the two gets a lot of attention, partly because that sort of dynamic, both between Christian and atheist and Christian and Muslim and Christian and Jew and all these different categories, these the tribal energy, let's say, tends to get a lot of attention. But I am very interested in this other level of the conversation that Tom Holland has been doing a ton of work in in terms of using Islam as a foil to get a better understanding of Christendom and what has happened in the story of Christianity with the development of the secular. And that's sort of my, one of my main interests. It's also of interest to me to talk about, to, to continue the process of trying to figure out what on earth we mean by this word religion. And so I'm going to, after I wanted to get some of that Islamic stuff out there before I talk about religion, because, well, let me, let me go to, let me go to something else. Um, okay, let's, let me talk about Emily. And Emily and I have been chatting via Twitter messenger for a while now, and, um, We've been looking to try and get a rando slot at some point. She's got a bunch of videos of her kids. Um, but she did a, she did a, I wouldn't have brought this up if she hadn't done sort of a, um, an introducing herself to the corner video. I think Emily's got some, I'm thinking about doing a, a women's only live stream one of these Fridays, probably behind the membership section because the dynamics of masculinity and femininity, if you go to the breakwater videos, you can find uh, Andrea with the bangs and I having a conversation about that. I'm going to release it to my channel at some point. I've been thinking about it, might do some clips first. But the, the dynamics between men and women, masculinity and femininity, even in this 
little corner or this little carrot or this little cave, however we want to describe it, are complex. And so women, for very good reasons, are a little bit less comfortable sort of putting themselves out there in the way that men are. And that's, I think that's completely natural, normal. Anyway, part of the reason I bring up Emily in this is she's married to a, um, her husband is Lebanese. And so all of the, I'll just, I'll, I'll leave it like this. All of the news in the Middle East obviously is through a perspective. If you're Lebanese, well, there's a long history of, of conflict and turmoil. And not only a long history, but long histories and short histories have their own meaning. And so, in other words, if you grew up during the Lebanese Civil War of the 70s and 80s, uh, it's not just something you watch on the news and see videos of. It's, it's very personal. Um, you, you've lost family members and relatives and friends, and war is war is war is war. So she she has an awkward introducing herself to this little corner video, which I thought was really excellent. Didn't quite get enough views, I didn't think. So I'm gonna. Um, Chad caught it. Um, <laughs> some of the some of the some of the elders of the corner. Um, um, Nahama caught it, and and part of what part of what we're doing here is processing together. And it, for me, a big element of value in this online community is finding new conversation partners who are not only smart or well-read, but also have a fair amount of personal life experience from very different places. And for that reason. Um, my, my new Israeli friends are, you know, I cherish them. And so we're basically developing a friend network that in some ways is similar to this global network that the internet has created. But via the stories, these people are people in our lives, uh, at least to a little degree. Whereas, let's say, even something like, you know, I followed Tom Holland quite a bit. Um, I've spoken with Tom Holland. Um, but it's I haven't had I don't have the same kind of access to Tom Holland, same kind of familiarity with Tom Holland that I do, at least potentially with people who live closer to me and who are uh, further down a status hierarchy because hierarchies bind and blind. So the first video I, I wanted to just get some voices out there and get some get some ideas out there. And, and part of the reason of this video was to illustrate just how complex the questions are and just how, many different voices there are, and in some ways how many of these ideas fall along a menu which is, it's sort of Jordan Peterson-esque in that there are sort of archetypes that emerge, and they can have a Muslim version and a Christian version. There are, there are a limited number of responses on the menu for certain types of conflicts in humanity. But when it comes to, let's say, the question of how these religions, and, and it's it's a tremendously difficult thing to talk about because these religions, you can conceptualize them as spirits, let's say. You can conceptualize them as bodies of information. The way in which we can and the way in which we interact with these spirits, with these religions, is important. Because, for example, I should probably dig up my Houston Smith copy of the World Religions. I mean, you can read in Houston Smith um, 
read a book about religions, but like Dave, if you're in Ubers a lot and you're starting to build relationships with uh, Muslims from Morocco or Muslims from Iran, now Muslims from Morocco and Muslims from Iran, they may be sort of two different things. Now Christians can sort of sense this, a Christian from Georgia, a Christian from Greece, a Christian from Armenia, a Christian from Texas, a Christian from Sacramento, a Christian, you, you very much get the sense that, oh, there's, there's a lot of layers here. And it isn't that the religious layer, let's say the, the, the big, huge religious layer is unimportant. It's just really difficult to try to come up with useful heuristics. Jonathan used that word with Alex O'Connor. It's difficult to come up with with useful heuristics that that sort of help guide your way through it. And now that we're in a season where a lot of people are reevaluating their own position with respect to these enormous things called religion, figuring out these heuristics is very salient to people. And it's obviously very salient to people in this little corner because there's a lot of people who are asking formative questions. And some people are looking at Judaism. If it's not Judaism, maybe this uh, Noahidism, which is sort of Judaism light, Judaism for Gentiles. In many ways, Christianity is a far older version of Judaism for Gentiles. Um, uh, because, of course, Christians say that Jesus is the culmination of the covenant so on and so forth. Of course, many Muslims go on and say, well, well, Muhammad is the final prophet. And then you have a religion like um, Latter-day Saints who say that prophecy is ongoing. You have forms of Pentecostalism in America, and you have other, other different sort of buddings out of Christianity in the West that had continued prophecies or at least new authorities or new lights, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, religions are very dynamic, are very dynamic things that can continue to go on. But part of the landmine that you face is that, well, you start talking about religion and you come to a situation where, well, here's a person whose, whose husband is Lebanese. Now he's Lebanese. He might be um, might be Muslim, and he might be uh, a Druze Christian. So some of these Eastern Christians that have continued on in the former Ottoman Empire, which then was sort of taken over after the, the First World War by the European colonial powers. And I mean, the, the, the Middle East is a very dynamic place. So there's, there's a ton going on in in this. And so I wanted to do a little bit of talking about the category of religion. Let's see if I can find my mouse and get this PowerPoint in a little in a little nicer order. My mouse has to span across uh, six screens, so sometimes it gets it gets a little wayward here. Oh, come on. No, there. Okay. Okay. And sometimes sometimes some of these some of these things act funny. Oh no. Uh, okay, let's start here. Let's talk let's talk about common religion. Now part of why religion is difficult to talk about is because 
it is so particular because people are so particular, because people are so complex. And so what I'm about to present here are generalizations that are in the service, hopefully, of finding useful heuristics that can help people sort of navigate their way around. Pastors are always using heuristics because we have to deal with multiple people, but we have to deal with multiple people as individuals. So as we continue to know people, you sort of, the heuristic goes away and the individuality starts to emerge. And that's why pastors have the kinds of conversations they do. You start with a heuristic and sort and you, you leave that behind as the people emerges, but there's also layers of heuristics because each little data point that you encounter in a person brings up a whole nother set of heuristics. Now, part of this is, is not conscious to us. It's just the generalizations that we use to reduce the world and to process the world. Part of it is conscious because the more you do this, you realize that heuristics are your frenemies. Uh, they're friends because you need them to process a world too big, but they're also enemies because uh, they. what you do is then you sort of project a heuristic on the person you're talking to instead of seeing the person. And so with more conversation, with more data points, with more question and answer, you start to drill down deeper. And then learn. meeting these people continues to continue to alter the heuristics that you're working with. And we do this, we do this quite naturally. And, um, but one of the things, the more you do it, at some point you might begin to think about, oh, this is, this is actually what I'm doing with respect to this. So common religion, let's talk about common religion. Here are four areas. They're not the only areas, but there, there are some big areas of generally speaking, what human beings take away from with their religion. Now with different individuals, they're gonna, they're gonna be in different measures. They're gonna be in different levels of consciousness or awareness. Uh, different religions are gonna interact with these differently. Now in terms of Islam and Christianity, there's a fair amount, I would imagine there's a fair amount of commonality between them because they have common roots in Judaism and of course, but, but also when you look at, let's say, American California Buddhists versus, let's say, Buddhists that are living in other parts of the world, who are sacrificing goats, who are participating in the religion in a different way, some of these things are going to work differently because American Californian Buddhists are sort of agnostic Buddhists in a way that secularism as a religion has kind of displaced some of these things. And, and that's why going around Twitter right now is um, our, our videos of, you know, the, well, it's so funny listening to Tom Holland talk about human rights as, well, it's, it's not something you bump into reality. And, um, and then other atheists out there saying human rights is a fiction. Okay, but how do we regard fiction? So... Common religion, one aspect of, of religion that commonly works with people is a belief and a trust in a higher power. Now, I, I, I use that from AA because that phraseology has been very successful with AA, basically getting at this deep motivation within human beings that someone somewhere is, is at least, there's a possibility that someone somewhere with more reach and more power is looking out for me. You can see this in polytheism and having a special God a special relationship with a special God, that this God is sort of your, your patron. 
it's sort of a it's sort of a patronage type relationship and you look to that higher power for deliverance you look to that higher power for providence someone to guide your steps you look to that higher power as someone to appeal for for help and um a go-to illustration of this out of antiquity is from Mary Beard's um, The History of Ancient Rome. According to one Roman tradition, the Temple of Jupiter, where Cicero harangued Catiline on 8 November 63 BC, had been established seven centuries earlier by Romulus, Rome's founding father. Romulus and the new citizens of his tiny community were fighting their neighbors, a people known as the Sabines on the site that later became the Forum, the political center of Cicero's Rome. Things were going badly for the Romans, and they had been driven to retreat. As a last attempt to snatch victory, Romulus prayed to the god Jupiter, not just to Jupiter, in fact, but to Jupiter, but to Jupiter Stator, Jupiter who holds men firm. He built a temple in thanks. Romulus promised the god if only Romans would resist the temptation to run for it and stand their ground against their enemy. They did, and the temple of Jupiter Stator was erected on that very spot, the first in a long series of shrines and temples in the city built to commemorate divine help in securing a military victory for Rome. So a higher power, someone that you can appeal to, someone that can show up in an instance. I mean, Constantine starts this way. Uh, AA people start this way. It's, it's a very big deal for people to be able to have a higher power to appeal to, and so they do. And this is common religion, and they'll appeal to different things. Now, there are many ways to think about this. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's an interesting dynamic in New Atheism that I think, I think Malcolm uh, Collins has it right, that in many ways the urban monoculture is a negative utilitarianism. And, and, and even though New Atheists talk about the, the shucking of religion as something that will bless humanity, what new atheism actually does in undermining common religion is make people feel worse. Remember, negative utilitarianism is all about feeling for suffering. Well, you take away people's higher power, they feel worse. Now, you might think it's all BS, but you have basically made them feel worse. And, and this conversation has gone on back and forth in the atheist, new atheist thing. Now, now, churches have also done similar things, and Christians have also done similar things, because part of the tribal dynamics fighting between religions is, well, which higher power is real? Or what, what in fact, are the qualities of the higher power? And part of what makes, let's say, the conversation between Islam and Christianity so difficult is, well, who is Allah? Now, Allah is just the Arabic word for God. And if you say... Um, if you have this big d debate, who is Dios? Dios is the Spanish word for God. Someone would say, Dios is God. And you say, well, Allah is God. But Allah in Islam has taken on a whole connotation. And and as Dave Barker, um, he said it in the, Dave said it in the, the estuary meeting, not in the, um, not in the Freddie and Paul show. He said, well, you and I have two different Jesuses. And this actually came up at the Senate. Um, as when they're debating an LGBTQ thing, there's almost two different Jesuses going on here. Well, there's two different gods, and how are we supposed to figure these out? But to take away the category altogether, well, first of all, it's probably not going to work because I think this is deeply built into us. 
And why is it deeply built into us? Well, there's a whole big conversation. But secondly, um, you, you have just brought in a lot of suffering for people, and you've basically given them nihilism. And as I've said a number of times, one of the things I realized in the early years of this journey of mine, uh, nihilism induces depression. And um, yeah, that's on you, new atheists. That's on you. So first thing, a higher power. Second thing, a blessed afterlife. Religion after religion after religion, part of the function of the religion is to provide, okay, what happens after we die? A common human anxiety. Again, New Atheism says nothing. So they tried to, it's a negative utilitarianism. They tried to deal with the, um, the negative by getting rid of the category altogether. Well, that's, that's also rather unsatisfying. And I think it's for part of this reason that new atheism as a religion has not proven to live very long. It's failed its Darwinian test, as I think Justin Brierley is aptly demonstrating with his new podcast, because it's just unsatisfying. I mean, the, the reason that people show up for funerals is, well, they can't quite know. There's a, there's a, there's, there's a great, um, So the Alex O'Connor, Jonathan Peugeot video has just dropped, and there's a lot of interesting pieces in it. And I really see Alex O'Connor as kind of a seeker. Problem with seeking is that somebody said, if you seek, you'll find. And uh, talk to Martin Shaw about that. Religious buildings are so connected conceptually to beautiful buildings in a way that buildings that I won't call them atheist buildings. That seems like a strange mm. concept, but buildings that don't have any kind of religious connection seem not to seem not to have that, that beauty in the same way. Yeah. At least that's what people think. I don't know if it's true. So there are a few things to mention. One is the way that kind of traditional societies function the best way to understand it for a modern person is to understand it as a kind of fractal situation, a fractal system of center and periphery and inside and outside unity and multiplicity. And so the church acts as a, a, a locus of unity for a village. Like if you take, a, let's say, a small town, there's a church in the small town. The church is usually in a central space, if not in the actual center of the, church, of the, of the town. It is taller than the other buildings for a reason because it is the vector of unity. So we look we're all there, and if we look around, the thing. And I said, as I said at the at the original German festival a year ago, it's an alien technology because it connects heaven and earth. That's what those church buildings are. But also, other religious buildings do similar. Again, we're talking about common religion. That that we see that's taller than everything else is actually the thing that binds us together as a community. And so we, you know, we go there, we celebrate the things that bind us together, the things that unify us, the things that are related to our origins. So we have weddings and baptisms and, uh, and deaths and all of these things we celebrate uh, at the place that binds us together. So there's, a, there's an actual coherence to the way in which it's a medieval city, city would manifest themselves, which is with this building at the middle. And so you can understand it as kind of like an offering to what binds us together. So for the same reason that you would make yourself, uh, let's say, well-dressed to go to a wedding or that you would decorate the house for a Christmas meal, you are offering your excess up 
to something which binds you together. And so it becomes like a shining beacon of your unity, right? And that, so it's like a, it's on the one hand, a, a, a sense of sacrifice where we're sacrificing this excess into something which binds us together and up towards something which transcends us. Uh, but then it also becomes an image of our unity. That's why it's, it's a, that's why it is, it has a, now, part of what's happening here, and in this video, too, where I'm talking about common religion, is a big thing of what Jordan Peterson sort of broke open five years ago is helping agnostics, secular people, atheists understand the sociology, the psychology beneath common religion. And Jonathan Peugeot is essentially doing the same thing here. It's not also the. It's usually not an individual building, especially like the the more medieval churches. It's not. It's something which is happens over time, right? It happens over a century, two centuries. The church is an organic part of the unity of the town itself. It's not a. It's not just an artistic statement or some, or or the way we understand how we make art today. And it's not even just architecture. It is that, right? It's a. It's a beacon of unity. Maybe best way to understand. It. But I suppose and. Um... I agree with you, and that's it's fascinating. Um, and maybe that's why, you know, if you look at an old town hall, for example, which isn't quite a secular church, but perhaps the idea of a town hall is that it's supposed to be something like the the place where everybody comes together. These these buildings also tend to be quite beautiful yeah. and 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 uh, well put together and designed almost as if they they could be transformed into churches. But I don't see why it is the case that when somebody's building a, a skyscraper. I understand, you know, residential blocks and, and functionally trying to house people. But if you're building the Shard, it, London's tallest tallest building, I, I mean, sure, there, there's a sense in which the Shard is is, is quite pretty. It's a, it's a slightly explorative form of form of art. But so, I mean, some of these skyscrapers, the walkie-talkie, uh, the, yeah. these seem to be. It, I don't understand why it is the case that they can't also have a similar devotion to, to to beauty that would have existed mm. in something like an old church. Like, why is it, I understand why every now and again, you build a skyscraper, somebody takes a risk and it goes wrong. But it seems like every skyscraper we build is, is an excess, it's like testing people's assumptions about the subjectivity yeah. of art. It, it's like, you know, it's like God is laughing at us in saying that, you know, when, when we decide that beauty is subjective and it's just your opinion, man, he's like, well, you know, Try living here for a couple of years. Yeah, let's and, just see what and, happens if you and do see live how it that goes. Way. You know, see how you like it. Uh, yeah, but I don't understand why that's the case. Like, why why does this happen? Yeah. Well, it is in the the secularist approach itself. It's bound in that, which is that if you live in a world in which uh, questioning your suppositions about things, questioning your presuppositions about things, and critical thinking is that which is worshipped, you know, like the idea that criticizing is more powerful and it had, there's a kind of, there's a kind of, of, of smartness of criticizing. And there's a kind of naive stupidity of believing and having faith in something. You know, if you believe something, if you have faith in something, you're, you, you're, you, you should have a, uh, you should be cynical about it, right? You should, you should be cynical about the things that bind us together. And so this is woven through our society in at all kinds of levels, right? It's not just, 
you know, it happens on the one hand in the technologies, which provides us with with all kinds of technologies, but it also happens in the in the social space, which means that every year there's a new theory about how humans work and it's com it's completely new and it's revolutionary and we never thought of it before. And it just happens every single, uh, you know, every cycle. Our education system, for example, here in Quebec has had reforms like every five years for the past three decades, constantly reforming the way in which we do things. So it's a, it's it's a it's an approach to reality, which uh, which gives the results that it gives, which is this. It's also part of what it also gives us fashion. And fashion is hilarious because obviously fashion on your clothes is is easy to, you know, because you're going to throw your clothes away and you move out. But fashion in buildings is the most the funniest thing ever. So you have these fashions of buildings <laughs> and house building that just run through society. And then 20 years or 30 years later, you look at it like your grand. Now, a little bit later, he's going to talk about Alex is going to return to the question of, well, maybe maybe it's just revered because it's old. And Jonathan's going to flip it around. And again, this is completely part of the Darwinian truth realization and Darwinian religion realization of Jordan Peterson that, no, it's old because it's beautiful. Because it's been, it's it's not that it's lasted, it's lasted decades, not just years, meaning it's constantly been updated and kept. And it that's that's part of why it's still there, because it's been preserved. Next point on common religion, justice. People will regularly look at Hitler or Stalin or Mao as people who, let's say, were horrendous human beings who did terrible things. What they seldom pause and say is, hmm, they got away with it. Well, what do you mean they got away with it? Well, they never stood trial. Well, they died. Well, we all die. So what was special. Well, Hitler was cowering in a bunker or he slipped off to Argentina. You know, um, Stalin died with his henchmen around him, possibly poisoned, but we don't know. Mao died of natural causes, we assume, but they all get away with it. Did they, did any of them have to pay for the suffering and death of million upon millions upon millions of people? that they, using the exercises of state power, used to, well, or what about all of their victims? Did they get justice? No, they died too. Well, justice that this world can't and won't afford. So here's a go-to quote of mine on my blog from, from Miroslav Volf, who wrote a book, Exclusion and Embrace, after his experience in the the breakdown of Yugoslavia during that civil war, of course, communism and atheism sort of held the supremacy there. One could object that it's not worthy of God to wield the sword. If God is not love, long-suffering, and all-powerful love. A counter-question could go something like this. Is it not a bit too arrogant to presume that our contemporary sensibilities about what is compatible with God's love are so much healthier than those of the people of God throughout the whole history of Judaism and Christianity? 
Recalling my argument about the self-immunization of evildoers, one could further argue that in a world of violence, it would not be worthy of God not to wield the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not have the final end to violence, God would not be worthy of our worship. Here, however, I am less interested in arguing that God's violence is not unworthy of God than in showing that it is beneficial to us. Atlan has rightly drawn our attention to the fact that in a world of violence, we are faced with an inescapable alternative, either God's violence or human violence. Most people who insist on God's nonviolence cannot resist using violence themselves or tacitly sanctioning its use by others. They deem the talk of God's judgment irrelevant, but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands. Persuaded, presumably, that it is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges. What well, we should, um, what should we, that we should bring down the powerful from their thrones, Luke 1, 51 to 52, seems, seems responsible. That God should do the same, as the song of that revolutionary virgin explicitly states, seems crude. And so violence thrives, secretly nourished by a belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. My thesis, that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance, will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering in a lecture, imagine you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where a paper that underlies this chapter was originally delivered. Among your listeners are people whose cities, villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude towards violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home to birth, um, for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked with the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one would do well to reflect on many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. In other words, throughout history, people have longed for their gods that will give justice in the afterlife that has not happened here. And those of you who have been listening to my videos for a long time know when you try to bring heaven down, you usually bring hell up. And that's exactly what we saw with communism, for let's say, and, and many other totalitarian regimes. Most totalitarian regimes try to bring heaven down because they're totalizing. They have a particular vision of heaven, and they have totalizing power, and they try to instill it. And instead, what they bring up is hell. So common religion has a higher power. For deliverance, providence, someone to appeal to to help, a blessed afterlife, justice that this world can't and won't afford, and a meaningful arena to act within. And we've talked about the sacred can canopy, uh, Peter Berger's book. We've we talked a little bit about that. We haven't talked a lot about it. Um, we've talked a lot about that's very much in the Jordan Peterson space, that a story within which to live and act is deeply meaningful. Now, what often happens with religion is that at least a certain portion of the population, let's say common religion, doesn't go away with the eggheads because even people with big brains and lots of capacity for abstract thinking, hopefully they haven't done that to the degree that they've lost connection with their heart. Some do. But many, many people have heart, maybe not the super high IQ, so they practice common religion. But then you get some 
that seek learned religion. And learned religion goes to some different areas. A community of mysteries to pursue. A community of mentors to follow. Because all of this learning, we're going to read books from, from mystics, we're going to read books from smart people, we're going to read books from saints of whatever um, situation we have, people who have excelled. And so then we're going to study that excelling, hoping to derive some wisdom from it, to learn it for ourselves and pass it down to others. And then there will be tradition. If you haven't seen Job and Chad's talk today, it was, it was outstanding. Well, and so, so far, the talk of liturgy change has never happened. I just hope that it never does. Because for me, that was the attractive bit for my wife and I. My wife grew up in a Catholic church. And um, and I thought initially that I would want to be Catholic. And she said, Dude, you're not going to want to be Catholic. You're not disciplined enough. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, since we decided that we would go on this adventure anyways... Um, I'll follow your lead. And mm -hmm. we landed in uh, a, a different church of the same uh, same denomination with a similar liturgy. And then that church had some strange. And so we moved out of that and found one nine minutes from our house. And we decided, well, this is this is nice. And I like it because I can practice formation with them. I like the liturgy for that. And that's where I learned that the Eucharist meant something more than just, uh, you know, some symbol. Um, and nobody taught me that. That was an experience that I had. And um, that's all very, very powerful to me. So I'm trying to pay attention to the, the, the elders that are there because I want to be able to try to carry along what they're giving me. I'm responsible for that stuff to some degree, you know? Huh, that's, that's yeah. There, sorry, this is just my brain making a connection. There used to be a man that, that I, I know a man who became a folk song singer. I don't know him, but I used to meet him at a conference, let's say. Okay. And he became a folk song singer. He used to be a software engineer, eventually started his own bakery, and now he's a folk song singer. So it kind of gives you an idea about the sort of person this might be. I've heard him sing. He's got a good voice. Uh, and he said, it's kind of when you sing this song, this really old song, you got to kind of imagine that all the people who also sang the song before you are standing in a huge line and they're all kind of listening to you sing that song that they sang. And you, you kind of get a mental image as soon as you hear that, right? If this really long row of people just, just hearing you sing that song that they sang. And what you just said about you're continuing this, this, these traditions, these liturgies, these, these, these shapings, that that's that's a responsibility yeah it, 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 i don't know it just made me think of that i think that's quite beautiful uh i mean i i think that like as part of the church council you have to well at least in my church like okay we had a church meeting the annual church council meeting and and part of what's beautiful here is that of course job you can find 
all of my I, I've asked Chad and Job if I can replay this whole video on my channel just because it's it's just so amazing. But CW Weeks again, why the little corner? The little corner is because I want to know you all more fully, first of all, than I can probably. But over time, if you hang out here, and actually the little corner is also an attentional economy, you can sort of make your way in with enough um, volunteering yourself. So both of these men started going to church because of everything that has happened over the last six years. And now both of these men are in leadership of their churches. Think about that. They're not alone. And I often tell people that, yeah, you can be in leadership of a church if you attend to it and if you display a bit of confident competence that people will put their confidence in you and then in you go. But again, this is common stuff. So so the, the second point here, tradition. Learned religion will develop tradition. Opponent processing religion. Enough order for st emotional stability, but enough chaos to prevent stagnation. And religions hold that tension. And the tension is held in community, not by never making mistakes, but by always making mistakes on either the side of order or the side of chaos. And then you learn from those mistakes and you pull it back in. And it's that constantly, now I'm, I'm exapting or using using opponent processing as a, it's a, opponent processing is a metaphor based on, let's say, a, a physiochemical dynamic to, to maintain homeostasis in a human being. So then we have opponent processing, which is all language is metaphorical to a degree. And so now I'm taking that and taking it to another level and saying this happens in communities as well. And we're sort of working, working in that. Um, it's also in community that people find opponents. C.S. Lewis said his first friend, Arthur Greaves, uh, Arthur C.S. Lewis was, um, Arthur Greaves was a little boy who was sick and his father or his aunt told Lewis, I think his aunt, uh, go down the street. There's a little boy down there who could use some company because he's sick. And C.S. Lewis goes down there and they start talking and learn that they're both into Norse mythology. You like that stuff too. It's like, and, and Lewis said, that's my first friend. Because my first friend is someone who loved what I loved. So we could sit there and love it together. That's his first friend. His second friend was Owen Barfield. Why? Because Owen Barfield disagreed with him on all sorts of things. But the situation was right where they enjoyed. They had enough, they had enough commonality. They had enough of sort of the opponent processing to keep the tension there so they could continue to agree to disagree. And so that then launched what, what Lewis would later on call the Great War between Lewis and Owen Barfield, much of which Owen Barfield won. And then you have the products of, of beauty, which I just played a little bit of that, Alex O'Connor, the meaning, the beauty, the stability, the hope. These are all the props, sorry, the products of religion. And, and these are what, what religion hold. Now, there's no question that Islam has produced beautiful buildings. And people go all over the world to look at the beautiful buildings of Islam. And so Alex O'Connor is right. Religions do this. And Peugeot is right because they draw it all in. But if you're going to have a higher, um, if you're going to have a higher resolution about the religion, 
then you have to get into these very difficult questions, probably not finally answerable, of the essence of the religion. And even when you look at, you know, so a number of people have commented on my reaction to Jonathan Peugeot when he said Islam is submission. Yes, but that's not all it is. And, and someone might argue that that's the essence. And so if you go to Peter Kreeft in a video, I don't remember which one right now, um, when he commented on Islam, <coughs> might have been in the Jordan Peterson video, but you know, commented on Islam approvingly, which some friends of mine then were not very happy with Peter Kreeft, because Peter Kreeft was commenting on approvingly of the dynamic of submission to God, which Christians hold that, Jews hold that. Um, anybody who has sort of a, a, a religion with a God, well, the submission to the God, it's all sort of built into the definition. But, but then where does that go? So then it's the particularities of how that works out. So I wanted to, I wanted to talk about this because when you, when you bump into someone in your world, now I've brought up Rami at a number of points and, and However faithful Rami is to Islam, I don't know. But part of the power of that through television, let's say, is to say that, well, I've often said that I am a Christian, but I'm, I'm a deeply secular Christian. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, a lot of human secularity and, let's say, atheism and modernism and all these things have deeply impacted me. It's deeply impacted how I live, what I say, what I do. We're not going to escape these things. And so a Muslim, I just saw somebody commenting that too. There we go. A Muslim, I mean, should I say van der Klei in a Dutch accent or should I say van der Klei like an American? This is the trick with respect to religions. And it's especially a trick with respect to see all these aspects. Well, the Quran can't really be read in translation. Okay. But that point isn't just about the Quran. That point goes by, by saying Muslim, and I'm still not saying it right, just like I never could say Edinburgh properly, and I never could say Melbourne properly, and I'll never say Muslim properly, just goes to show, well, you have these little sheepgate tests like, like Grim Grizz had with his savings throws. And again, why a little corner? Well, because now we have context. Now we have community. Now we have standard things that we can talk about. You know, say, yeah, but just like with Muslim, all of these standard things, there's opponent processing with them. They limit. And those limits are helpful. But those limits are also containing and binding and constraining and limiting. Limits limit. Oh, what a profound observation. But these are all the dynamics. And I say this because when you're talking about something as fraught as, let's say, something like Islam, is it Islam or is it Islam? Is it Jonathan Pajot, as Jordan Peterson usually says, or is it Jonathan Pajot? Is it Matthew Pajot or Machu Pajot, which I can't really, really say correctly anyway, because who can speak French correctly besides the French? It's a, it's a, you know, it's a Latin language, 
for Pete's sake, the Spanish at least were accommodating and making it semi-hopeful that you could get there, at least Latin American Spanish, because that is different from Castellano. Anyway, such is human community. So I wanted to say this about religion because it's vitally important, actually. Because if we're going to have the kind of productive conversation, so Hezi, even saying his name, just made the comment on my Islam video. Very important conversation, Paul. Thank you for taking it on. Without proper dialogue with my Muslim cousins, there's no way forward. Reform must come and Jews and Christians have the knowledge we want to share of how to transfer and interpret the sacred, um, like the oral Torah, into evolving morals of modern times. Uh, they must reuse the methods of, and I can't say that word either, but Tom Holland said it a number of times. Um, and then Grail Country, Nate says, remember that conversation we have going? Now that PVK is clearly catching up, uh, maybe the timing is right. So here, here's, here's the question. But just like with that table in that video about Islam, some will say, just entering into the conversation like that betrays Islam. You don't believe people are going to say that? I find people saying it in Christianity. Just, and this is, I talked to the estuary meeting on, on Sunday morning about this, this too, Abraham Kuyper. You have the antithesis and you have common grace. There's always tension between the two. That's the opponent processing. And so when Tom Holland gets in a group like that and says, even the way we are going about this, even the goal we have with respect to, well, how about how about the people of how about the Muslims and Jews in the Middle East not killing each other? Even that goal, I'm not saying it's an exclusively Christian goal, but it's a deeply Christian goal. And I'm not saying Jews don't have that goal, and I'm saying not saying Muslims don't have that goal, but some Muslims don't have that goal. And I'm sure some Jews don't have that goal and some Christians don't have that goal. So this is the complexity here. So I wanted to lay common religion out here. And why do I do that? Well, this is sort of homeroom. And we're just mapping some new language so that we can talk about some of these things. So leave a comment. Let me know what you think.